Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And this week we are talking about pregnancy. How did people manage it? What did they think about it? How has it changed in the last few thousand-ish years, give or take? So, you know, I mean... Essentially, since that one time it happened without sex, what's been going on? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, outside of... You know, the odd virgin birth stories. We pretty much have a, you know, unless you are the literal Virgin Mary, we are now discussing biological pregnancy that involves a human woman and a human non-godly father. (laughs) So last week we talked about fertility, infertility, how people get around to making a baby, and now we talk about the growing baby process. Baby time. So, I mean, I guess I will start us off in antiquity um, and basically say that uh, just as a general statement for pretty much everything until about... I don't know, like the 1850s or so, (laughs) like for all of human history, pregnancy was pretty precarious. Like there was no real expectation that it was going to go super well. You could easily lose the baby, lose the mother, lose both. There could be complications. There could be really bad health outcomes. Also, half the time, you didn't even know if you were pregnant or not until there was actual movement of the fetus so you know it's a very different situation here um so that being said for the most part pregnancy advice and how people would go about you know being pregnant and trying to maintain a healthy pregnancy was usually pretty baseline common sense for the most part um just as some examples, if we look at uh, Hippocrates' Diseases of Women, Part 1, there there are many diseases of women, but, you know, I, I mean, there is the kind of general advice, which is um, a pregnant woman is sick and weak, and if she picks up a burden with all her bodily strength, or if she is beaten, or leaps into the air, or goes without food, or has a fainting spell, or takes very little nourishment, or becomes frightened and scared, or shouts violently and loses control over herself, <laughs> um, these are all ways that the embryo can be aborted. So, all those pregnant women leaping into screaming, the Screaming, uh, becoming frightened. But, I mean, you know, genuinely, it is pretty solid advice. Don't be lifting super heavy stuff when you're pregnant. Don't beat your pregnant wife. 
I mean, don't beat your wife generally, but definitely not if she's pregnant, you know? Don't, you know, don't go without food. Like, make sure you're eating. Make sure that you are, you know, getting enough rest in. And... Self-care, sweetie. Exactly. Self-care. Take a nice bath. Have a nap. (laughs) You know, make sure you're eating some good, healthy food. And as we've talked about before, you know, Hippocratic and Galenic medicine remain basically the basis of medical thought throughout the Middle Ages in both Europe uh, and you know, the Mediterranean world through into the Middle East. Um, That's actually how a lot of these ideas get reintroduced into Europe later on is the translation from Greek into Arabic and uh, then back into Latin. It's a whole process of basically there's a lot of cultural exchange going on at this (laughs) point, which a Again, a lot of the time we tend to think that people in the past just, like, sat in their own village and never, you know, had any contact with anyone else ever, which is just not quite the case. Yep. Um, and if you look That's at... Silk Road, baby. Silk Road. You got boats. Lots of ships. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm there was... I'm on a boat. I'm carrying amber. I'm trading it for silk. We're talking about our medical practices. A point of interest that I also found was in Leech Book 3, there is dietary and pregnancy advice for women. And it says, prevent pregnant women from eating salt or sweet, drinking beer, eating pork or anything fat, drinking until drunk, traveling away, riding horseback too much, lest the child should come before time. Again, most of it, pretty standard, pretty basic stuff. Don't, you know, don't travel a bunch. Don't ride horseback. Try not to overindulge in, you know, salty or sweet or fat foods just generally but what i found interesting was the drinking until drunk part and the avoiding drinking beer um just because you know that's something we tend to think of as a more modern idea but like you know even as far back as the 10th century there is advice saying hey you know maybe maybe cool it with the alcohol (laughs) which I mean, to be clear, people in the past definitely drank. They would have been drinking beer throughout their pregnancy, Mm -hmm. um, just because in many cases that was going to be way safer than the water. But it, it typically was also probably pretty watered down. It was, you know, and, and it's the issue of, you know, you're living in a time where your options are, okay, well, I can drink a low alcohol content liquid basically mm-hmm. um, that I know is at least going to be that it's not going to make me sick versus yeah. drinking water from like the pond or the river or whatever that is more likely to make you sick because it's contaminated. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not to say like, ah, yes, <laughs> like drinking alcohol is a great idea. It was just sort of the, the less bad option at the time for a lot of people. Um, And 
Then when we're looking at some more medieval advice, again from the Trotula, there's actually a lot of pretty common uh, pregnancy issues that they deal with there. Like, okay, if her feet swell up, let them be rubbed with rose oil and vinegar, and after the remaining foods, let her eat poultry, quince, and pomegranate. Uh, if her belly is distended from windiness, take wild celery, mint, and cowbane. Um, you know, when the time of the birth is coming, let her be bathed often, and let her eat lightly and easy digestible foods. So, again, it's all quite common sense yeah. stuff. Um, and I think just because this was just sort of a regular part of life, um, it, right through into the early modern period, um, into colonial America, right? Like, as we talked about last episode, yes, childbearing was exhausting and it was difficult, but, you know, it was just sort of a normalized part of life kids came when they came and yep. it was just sort of an inevitable part of being a person who was married and having sex basically <laughs> like realistically most women in the pre-modern era generally would have spent the bulk of their fertile years either pregnant or breastfeeding um from what we know i mean there obviously are extremely fertile women who would get pregnant basically every year. Um, but it seems like at least in the early modern period, which would also like colonial America, early modern Europe, women typically seem to have maintained about a two year spacing between children, which probably had to do with breastfeeding because when you are nursing a child, it suppresses ovulation. Um, but yeah, I mean, given the fact that most women were either pregnant or breastfeeding most of their lives, it was just sort of, you know, you couldn't do, like, you, you couldn't turn your whole life upside down every time you got pregnant. Um, and, I mean, this was celebrated to have lots of children, as we've talked about, you know, women who were married and had children were respected in their communities they were called thriving, flourishing, fruitful. Um, and again, as we've talked about, children were a source of material wealth, of spiritual wealth, of, you know, help in your old age. So it was really important that you have a bunch of kids because, again, many of them would die before even their fifth birthday, let alone into adulthood. Yeah, I think um, we should touch on the the spiritual aspect of this as well, especially in like um, like Christian Europe and the idea that like having kids wasn't just like in the way that we think about it now as like something that you wanted or something someone that would like provide for you or help you work. It was like a like spiritual calling and requirement of like Christian life. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so the, the go forth and be fruitful bit was taken very seriously. Yeah. You were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And if you were basically, if you were married, you were supposed to be having children. That was maybe not yeah. the purpose of marriage, but definitely one of the, 
important purposes of marriage was seen as having children, um, which, you know, was not just seen as, okay, this is something I want to do for my own fulfillment or for my own emotional needs. It was a community thing of, we are having children, those children become part of the community, the community carries on, basically. Yeah. The children are our future. All of these people, yeah, and they'll continue to, like, worship God and yeah like and this, like... the, this idea of the like very individualistic christian didn't exist at this period so it wasn't no. like just about your own spiritual fulfillment or your personal relationship with god everything was about like your whole community as a nation state like developed like the nation's yeah. relationship with that like it's it's everyone in the world and like all of the souls to be born's relationship with god and so your part in that was partially to bring forth new souls to worship god it, yeah well and and it's also just that it was <laughs> i mean i think we also have to remember this is not like a this isn't like a, a sex positive culture right like it yeah. was seen as like okay if you do not want to live like you basically have two options you can become a monk or a nun or a priest which would for the most part especially once priests were banned from marrying like that was a life of celibacy right so you yeah. are freed from the burdens of bearing children taking care of children etc but that means you are celibate and your whole life is dedicated to prayer and worship. Or yeah. you can get married and have sex, but sex is like kind of animalistic. It's not yeah. like pure and good. So like it's something that takes over and you should be if there's like a lot of in like the ancient world looking at like myths around uh like nymphs and forest spirits and stuff that right the the nymphs were these like like they were they were seen to cause people to lose lose control right you're supposed to be able to like quash these base animalistic desires but like once you saw these nymphs they were so connected to nature and like so part of that like natural world that you were called to like these base natural desires and like became animalistic and like overcome with sexual desire and so like from looking at that and like the the way that people like discuss sex and procreation it very much is like this thing that if you are like intellectual and spiritual like you can sort of like crush that down and it'll only be part of your life for like this these specific purposes also yeah. if you look at all of the like rules about when and how you can have sex yeah yeah like you are there are very prescribed rules surrounding this especially in i feel like you know the ancient world there's a little more wiggle room um yeah. But once you, uh, uh, e even then though, I mean, there's there's wiggle room for men and their, you know, concubines, prostitutes, <laughs> escorts, slaves, etc. But between a man and other his men. wife, yes, other men. Uh, but when you're looking at a man and his wife, there's, you know, it's a pretty prescribed, like, 
this is how yeah. you have sex. You have sex yeah. with your wife for procreation. And that is, you know, what how a respectable woman has sex. She has sex to yeah. procreate. Um, and in the medieval world, it becomes even more so with, um, you know, as we've said, there's certain days where you can't have sex. Most uh, positions are out because if you have the woman on top, that will create a... You know, and her, her slippery womb will. <laughs> well, either her womb is going to be slippery and it will not result in a child, or you'll have a child, but it'll be like, th- like there'll be something wrong with it. You know, it'll be like demonic oh. or evil, or because you know the woman has usurped her natural position, which should be right. you know beneath the man. Um, and you also can't. You have to be facing each other during sex because, again, if you are, you know, having sex where you're not facing each other well that's like animals animals. yeah that's you're you're behaving like an animal in heat and you can't have that there's there is a big concern about not behaving the way animals do in the ancient world and especially the medieval world do not Um, do it like they do on the discovery uh, channel exactly (laughs) i mean it also applied to like food right like you can bite things like you wouldn't take a bite out of an apple because that's how an animal eats you have to take your knife and you cut a piece off and put it in your mouth like a human (laughs) so you know there's anyway yeah so So that's just kind of the yeah i just yeah yeah no you're absolutely right we have to look at these ideas around having children and stuff like through the full cultural lens of the period because like again the 19th century really changes our relationship with Christianity and like spiritualism in all sorts of different ways. And it's sort of across uh, specifically across like Abrahamic religions, but generally in the whole world, we get this more like individual relationship with like spirituality that changes our relationship. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a fundamentally different world and it it can be difficult to, you know, kind of, yeah, it can be difficult to really... kind of understand and relate, and it also, in a lot of ways, seems nonsensical if you don't have the full context. Because, like, yeah, they have, exactly. like, it was not nonsensical. They have a very, like, internally consistent worldview, which is that, yeah. you know, there is a nature to everything, and you have to mm-hmm. do something correctly and the way that nature intends it to be done. And if you you know, undermine nature or go against nature, it results in catastrophe, basically. Um, Hence, woman has to be underneath man. Sex is for procreation. Like, that is the natural purpose of things. Anyway, back to, you know, pregnancy more more specifically. Childbirth, for the most part, was... We'll just say it. Okay. Um, Yeah, let me start that part over again. So childbirth and pregnancy were definitely still viewed with, you know, kind of some level of apprehension and fear because, you know, they were quite dangerous about in the early modern period, um, about one in 30 women could expect to die in childbirth um, specifically, but, you know, more. It's 22%. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so about 22% then basically would expect to die in childbirth or as a result of complications 
afterwards. So things like, you know, hemorrhage or infection or, you know, other complications that can happen. There's also the fear of injury, right? Because there's not a lot of help you can have if you get pelvic floor damage, if you get damage to your uterus, right? Like you could have quite serious uh, complications, basically, and there wasn't really much way to treat them. But again, pregnancy was just a normal part of life, so you kind of just had to subsume it into the rhythm of your normal life. Even if you were a wealthy, fancy woman, you probably would have still just kind of kept on doing whatever you were doing in your in your life. Um, That being said, there was definitely an ex you know, an expectation for extra care from the husband and from, you know, other people in the household, right? Specifically during the last months of pregnancy, when, you know, obviously you're a lot more uncomfortable, things are harder. Um, So it was definitely, right, like a good husband would try to accommodate pregnancy cravings. And we see this in fairy tales like Rapunzel, right, where the wife really, really wants the Rapunzel salad and her husband goes and steals it from the witch, right? Or, you know, again, you were supposed to make sure that your wife did not have to do a lot of heavy labor. So you would, you know, try to make sure she's not lifting too much and doing that sort of thing. However, this definitely did not extend to enslaved women in the Americas, because here we do bring in some of the... Um, we've, we've mostly been focusing on... Let me... Let me reframe that. You got it. Right. So this, however, definitely did not apply to enslaved women. Up till this point, I have been discussing, you know, basically the views that were in place for European women colonizing Americans and Canadians. um, And with the antiquity and Hippocratic Galenic medicine, that would have you know, applied quite broadly throughout the Mediterranean world and into uh, the Near East. But now we are going to talk about um, enslaved Black women in the Americas and Indigenous women on Margot's part. Basically, when it came to the situation with an enslaved woman, slaveholders did recognize on one hand that heavy field work could cause miscarriages, stillbirths, postpartum injury. So they would somewhat allow slightly lighter work in the last months of pregnancy. But as we have talked about previously on the podcast, there were very different um, and ideas around basically non-white women's bodies at this point Mm -hmm. and specifically with enslaved black women there was a very racist and belief basically that they did not experience pain and didn't experience the same suffering in pregnancy and childbirth that a white woman would um Mm -hmm. so this was definitely you know not the um 
Let me reframe that. So that would not have been the experience for many women who were enslaved at the time and wouldn't have been given that same, basically, consideration or care during their pregnancies. And now Margot's going to take it away. Right, yeah. So I'm going to... uh... We're going to just refresh a little bit since it's been a week. Um, I mean, not for me, but for you guys listening, it's been a week. (laughs) Um, On some of the concepts that I sort of laid out again so that we can look at these things um, within the context of the society that we're talking about, uh, like we were doing earlier with uh, European women. Um, And again, using the term women in this context for lack of a better one (laughs) yeah when we are talking about women for the most part we are yeah there's not let me let me reframe that now (laughs) yes when we are talking in this podcast for the most part we are going to use the terms men and women because that is the binary gender language that would have been used at the time right like yeah there that was the understanding at the period and that's basically there especially in you know most especially um in antiquity and the early modern world um in the you know quote unquote old world there was relatively rigid gender roles like if you have a uterus you're a woman if you do not have a uterus you're a man and that's how it shakes out in this period there's obviously you know in indigenous cultures there was a little bit more flexibility um in especially in sorry i'm getting a brain fart can i just restart that yeah yeah so for lack of a better term in this podcast, we generally are going to be saying men and women in a very binary sense, only because that is how, by and large, this was being viewed in the past at the time when we're talking about these things. Yeah. And of course, when I'm talking about um, indigenous communities or any other sort of like colonized communities, we come into the issue of discussing literally anything in English about a culture that wasn't created within English. So like there's that or like a European based language that easily like maps onto each other, like French to English. Those are pretty similar. Spanish to English, pretty similar. But once you get outside of that into a fully different cultural context, using English to talk about anything. I mean, we talked about this in the previous season uh, when we were trying to define what nation and or state could mean. You know, we get into these things again here uh, with certain other like binaries and or other definitions. So uh, just to sort of outline some things again in in a sort of like broad context for what did like generally North America look like pre-contact or during early contact um just refresh on some of these 
cultural concepts that I started to outline in the previous episode. Um, so again, depending on where we're looking, um, these cultures have varying levels of matrilineal setups, um, some but not all. Uh, yeah, having a strictly patrilineal society is very uncommon. Um, and for childbirth specifically, what I'm going to be going into is taken um, mostly from records written by Crow midwives, um, just because it's like the most prolific source that we have on um, this particular topic. But uh, so this is taken from the cultures of the Northern Prairies. This sort of extends um, across the Midwest to the Northeast into like Iroquois and Algonquin cultures as well, especially if we're looking in the 19th century when there was a lot of like removal and movement toward the West. Um, so again, for, for these communities, uh, we have varying levels of matrilineal setups. Mostly a woman would control family slash domestic slash farming matter matters. Um, men do hunting and like the sort of warring slash politicking. But again, this is really flexible. And, um, I think I've talked about if you go back and listen to our, uh, third episode from the first season about private property, um, the ways that women could essentially undermine men's politics and like what we might call international uh warring or relationships um by essentially telling the women of other villages and other nations like what their men were planning before the men started doing it uh so that it could be undermined again so like this is sort of flexible depends on like a variety of specific factors rules in general are often set up and then subverted in very specific ways uh much like today you know like everything has its like workarounds um so yeah um but especially in terms of women's bodies and hereditary lines uh this is very much a the, the women's sphere um, and in these cultures specifically, yeah. so again, in um, in the northern prairies where we're looking at Lakota, Dakota, uh, Crow, what's often referred to as, like, so with the Lakota and Dakota, it's referred to as Sioux by the other communities, um, but also going into Algonquin and Iroquois linguistic communities, um, you traced your family line, your clan allegiances through your mother. So all of these nations, right, within it, you had different sort of, like, larger clan setups. Um, like, and they had all sorts of different names. Um, and you would trace that. That ha would have to do with, like, who you were allowed to marry, um, who inherited your personal property, um, how different sort of hereditary positions within the community would work um that was through these like clan allegiances um and that you would get through your mother or your adopted mother's clan um in the next episode i'm going to talk a lot about right. um this these systems of adoption that white people got real pissed about um and children would stay with the mother or adopted mother's clan if a partnership like a marital partnership devolved for any reason um this is a super simplification but it's important to understand how these things changed in the removal slash reservation period. Um, and to complicate this idea a little bit more, women could choose and dissolve marital unions. Um, and this was not an uncommon practice to like decide this isn't working and dissolve 
um, a marital union. Um, so children were normally firmer ties between families and clans than a marriage. So when we talk about like political marriages later in the season, when we get into like adult life, um, that was a practice in these um, indigenous communities, but it wouldn't really be seen as a firm allegiance um, until there was a child from that union, because again, they could just you could you could dissolve that as if it didn't happen. Um, yeah, yeah, and then this was also then complicated again by the complex system of adoption, um, and also like i mentioned this in the previous episode but biological parents were not always or sometimes even often the primary caregivers for children especially for a young couple on the prairies um caregivers would often be the grandparents or older aunts as this would give the couple time to like establish themselves within the community get their positions sort of like as leaders of different things or like farming set up um and so grandparents could like take the children and then the couples could like really get themselves set up without having to worry about a child that like came too early um and they would then be able to like really start very early within the marriage to get a child to solidify that a, like if there was a political allegiance that needed to be sort of like sorted out then like they don't have to worry about like oh yeah. we don't have stuff yet you know, the, the child would be adopted yeah. by the grandparents. Um, and again, to be clear, not saying that people just gave kids away or didn't care about kids. It was just a different structure than what was common in Western Europe at the time. Um, and again, in the, the, not the next episode, the one after our guest episode, I'm going to talk about um, early childhood and this adoption process, especially also when we talk about childhood illnesses and mortality. So for this episode specifically, what are we talking about? Um, we're, yeah, pregnancy. we're going to be talking specific. I'm going to go through more about <laughs> pregnancy. Um, and sorry, my notes are just a little convoluted here. So uh, what we need to remember as we're going through this, um, again, women and older women with children, especially were in charge of what happened with regards to childbirth and pregnancy a woman could conceive or end a pregnancy at her discretion um so again obviously this would be before the time of medical or surgical abortions but there are other uh you know herbal abortifacients and other like ways that you can end a pregnancy um and that was unquestionably up to the pregnant woman and the women that she consulted about that. Um, and women exclusively could be pre present for childbirth. Um, and all, it was almost always, so the birthing mother, her midwife and her mother, um, sometimes an aunt or a sister as well. Um, and as we discussed in the previous episode, white colonists really hated like just all of this, just the whole thing every part of it they were just like nope um so uh I'm... yeah especially once you get into the yeah. 19th century because when you're looking at earlier um situations mm -hmm. right like like you look at the early modern period both in europe and in you know the american the america yeah. colonies basically um it it is actually quite similar with women in those communities where you know male doctors are not allowed it's just the midwife and like the other women in the community who can be there for childbirth so it's it, it is an 
Sorry, I don't know what I was yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, this uh, again, like, all of these sort of cultural ideas shift a lot yeah. in the 19th century because sort of the entire world is rocked on its axis with industrialization yeah. and this really, like, ramp up of colonial efforts um, throughout the world. So, like, shit gets crazy. But um, what I'm going to lay out for this little discussion about pregnancy, um, especially to get us ready for our guest episode next week, that we're going to talk to a midwife, which is super exciting. Um, So one, we're going to go through thoughts about pregnancy in this like Mm -hmm. uh, pre-contact, early contact period. So like what we would call early modern. Um, What does a healthy pregnancy look like? What did pregnant women do? Were they afraid? Were there rules? What was all of that like sort of outlined? And then two, I'm also going to lay out what did the process of birthing look like and how was it sort of different from Euro-Western practices or the Euro-Western practices that are introduced in the 19th century, uh, which again is a little different from what it was before the 19th century. Three, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So three. Yeah, why I just wanted were to situate so this in time. For what did the white colonists? Uh, what did they do with all this anger that they had at, you know, something that literally didn't affect them at all? We'll go into that a little bit, and then we'll bop back over to the nineteenth century and and in these like colonial communities. And uh, Sonia will tell us some more stuff. Um, so again, what did pregnancy look like? Uh, well, you know, uh, human biology is pretty much the same everywhere because we're all humans. Um, and we have big old dumb brains that don't actually fit in a human pelvis. So the reality of birth is like pretty much the same everywhere. Um, it's not a super safe thing for human women to do. Again, our pelvis is too small for our big old dumb brains to fit through it, which is also why, People aren't really done cooking until we're 25, (sighs) which is just like the dumbest system of (laughs) biology. Yeah. Whereas like a goat or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still mad that like, you know, like every other animal just like comes out of the womb ready to go and we just like fully heads cannot do anything dumb until we're like don't fit through our yeah. dumb bipedal yeah. pelvises yeah, it's, it's great um so yeah and considering this like if we talk about oh, sort of truly tragic we, like, uh uh what's the if we personify biological systems in this sort of linguistic way we can talk about like the female body the woman's body really just like doesn't want to actually get pregnant um, it does a whole lot of stuff to try and not because because um, yeah, pregnancy no. is and childbirth is super difficult and dangerous um, and having an infant in almost any species is a vulnerability on the part of the car- parent that's like caring for the little baby so um, it's just like it's a it's a thing that can get yes. you killed and so the body is like <laughs> nope um so yeah, given all of this sort of general humanness, yeah. what it was experienced like for the women living through it, and what ideas did they have about pregnancy? Um, and to make a really, really complex topic super simple, um, it was really like much of the like uh, early modern 
misconceptions, understandings of pregnancy, um, that it wasn't a sure thing. Um, you didn't know for sure that you were pregnant again until like there was movement, uh, and that you should generally just like try and stay healthy. Um, there were obviously like some sort of uh, a spiritual difference, differences, just sort of in the idea of how the body and spirit mm-hmm. relate to each other. So again, you want to stay healthy and active, but you also want to s- make sure that the women stay like sort of firmly rooted within the community because if she has a strong spirit, then the child will be more healthy and the spirit that comes to the body of the child might be more willing to accept that that body um when we talk about changelings i'll get a little bit more into this idea because i think it maps um pretty neatly onto the like european idea of changelings um so again there's like a, a little bit of different understandings of like spirit bonds and bodies but essentially it's that like you want to keep really active keep doing what you're already doing make sure that like if you are able to get pregnant then you're probably healthy let's keep you healthy and have a good strong community um because then like everyone will be healthier afterward right that's sort of what we're going for here so it's really sort of super general um like eat food keep doing your work yeah that's pretty much it (laughs) um the the bigger difference is in what childbirth actually looks like especially because these practices were held on to a lot longer than they were in the west um because women especially really pushed back against the medicalization of childbirth. So before the removal period, a lot of birthing took place in designated birthing tents or lodges, again, depending on like what sort of structures your community built. Mm-hmm. Um, so the birthing mother, the midwife, um, and the grandmother of the soon-to-be child uh, would hang out in this lodge or birthing tent and like menstruation um which i'm sure we'll get into later in the season this was a time of serious power for the woman she had spiritual power in this time um which is part of the reason why men couldn't be there because again with menstruation a lot of times women would be secluded but it wasn't because of this idea of like uncleanliness uh when we talk about that that's really mapping these western ideas onto like these european ideas onto ideas of menstruation it was seen as this time that was super powerful a time when a woman was deeply connected to the earth and that power could be dangerous to men who encountered her um and so you didn't want to hurt their spirits in any way. And you wanted right. the woman to be able to like fully embody that like spiritual moment. So that was part of why there was like a seclusion with other women mm-hmm. um, in this period. Um, also, again, with childbirth. And also, again, a caveat, this is not like totally universal across mm-hmm. nations or cultures. Um, so you're speaking general yeah, yeah. i mean in general uh, we are speaking in general we are speaking in generalities yeah yeah, yeah. we're talking about um, broad so, swaths of area 
My culture so, does. You know, please don't come at us we're if, we, within if you're this like, realm of well, actually, space and time you're talking about, and you're like, yeah, I would love to hear I mean, about to clear, it, but also tell us because don't at me. We're <laughs> interested in learning things, but don't don't get um, mad so at again, us. We are um, not trying to disrespect that anyone. It's really important to indigenous women survival through um, childbirth especially going into the 19th century when uh, maternal mortality really spikes, especially among middle-class white women, um, is that indigenous women really, really refused to ever labor on their backs. Um, The process within a a birthing tent, generally, right, you would have like the natural ground floor. And so you... The, the midwife would place um, sticks or some sort of stool like down into the earth for the woman to hold on to, and then she would squat or kneel and support themselves on the rods or stool in the ground. This way, gravity was helping with the, the birthing process. Also, if you're standing or kneeling, um, that positions your pelvis. Yeah into um a safer like wider position um so that you're not sort of like folding up against your cervix um so that prevents a lot of like straining and difficulty that happens um and i'm sure that sonia is going to speak about this shift to prone laboring when we um go back to talking about colonial stuff um but also of note was the fact that midwives were women who had cared for women for many years right it took a it was a long process to become a respected midwife in these communities as it was in um early modern europe um they would have assisted with many births and they would have had children themselves um you wouldn't be a midwife if you had not given birth. Um, and Crow women were specifically renowned for their knowledge of how to shift babies in the womb so that there wouldn't be breach or footling births, um, which are very, very dangerous. Again, because big, dumb heads, you want the big, dumb head to come out first so that you know everything else will fit. <laughs> um, and so that nothing can get like hooked. That way you're, uh, you're, you're, the baby's limbs are not like contorted in a weird way um, where they can get hooked on the inside of your pelvis, um, which can be real bad yeah. uh, and dangerous. And I'm sure that we'll talk with our midwife uh, next week about this as well. But so Crow women uh, passed down this knowledge of how to like turn babies in the womb and also would know when something was wrong because they knew in themselves what you were supposed to be feeling and had would have seen and assisted so many births before that they wouldn't take um a woman's pain you know in stride they would know when something was wrong um and we'll also talk um there was a sort of different idea than in europe about how to approach birth women didn't necessarily go into it with this with with fear it was seen as like, yes, there was a question of like whether or not, like obviously there was the understanding of the statistics were, were relatively similar to early modern births and like that you might die. But the under, there was an understanding of like um, going in with a spiritual awareness of like, I can do this and like 
there's been recent studies on how the state of mind and panic in a mother can result in more dangerous outcomes. Um, again, just because of how your body sort of like tenses up in weird ways. And so the idea of yeah. protecting the spirit and staying calm would often actually help in the outcome of a birth. So like that's really, really important to sort of a general understanding of, of safe birthing. Um, and so we can move on to our step three of why we're colonizers are so upset about this and they had like so many reasons um mainly yep. was this really just hard to grasp concept um that they were upset that these societies didn't have nuclear patriarchal family structures which was the main issue and it's it seems sort of hard to tack track on to yep. like why they cared about birthing so much with this but it really does have to do with the weird process of the assimilation project. Um, I talked about this a little bit before, but um, essentially they wanted men to be more involved in all childbearing things so that like in order to just sort of like build up this culture of like men should be in charge of all family processes in order to to get people to lean yeah. into this nuclear family idea um and if you could start that at birth then all the better um they also had these like this yeah very strange idea about progression towards civilization and pain during childbirth um which probably had to do with a warped idea of biblical stories um, and the fact that animals often don't have as much trouble with birth. Again, big dumb brains, tiny tiny pelvis, that's why humans have such a hard time with birth. There are other animals that also have this issue, so you know, whatever. Um, but there was this idea that the more difficult childbirth, the more painful childbirth was for a woman, that reflected directly onto how civilized her culture was. Um, and so as you move toward trying to assimilate a culture into right, this colonial culture, uh, the introduction of hospitals becomes really important because they're trying to convince women that like the more civilized they are, then like the more dangerous their childbirth will be and a lot of that literally just has to do with like doctors not studying women or knowing anything about childbirth and so not and also not taking women seriously um which we'll definitely get into it's also based on a lot of like well and also about like 19 like yeah. late 18th and into the 19th century like race science in air quotes um where yeah i mean again this reflects right back onto as we were talking before about how you know black women in the americas were seen as whatever like, you oh doing. yeah of course you can just yeah. give birth and go right back really to a person working in the fields <laughs> because you know you're not like yeah you're not like civilized whereas like white women were like 
fragile and delicate and need more time to recover. Yeah, and and like, as if we... you're a rich white woman, like you're especially civilized. So it's it, yeah, it's very much a, a like racist for classist thing as well. The doctors and the medicalization of childbirth at the time, because when this this idea of you should have a doctor oversee your childbirth uh really starts taking off right women's mortality spikes um because they didn't know what they were doing essentially is what it is but like that is then written off as well like these women are so like the women who are having doctors come to their births are these like bourgeois or like noble or upper middle class women whatever however you want to describe this like group of people um they were dying at higher rates and it was like well it's just because they're so civilized they're so far away from these like animalistic tendencies that they can no longer like safely reproduce which just seems like a bad idea for civilization um but it also then that caused more and more problems for indigenous women uh where as this project on the reserves really starts playing out hospital births become one of the only options for them and depending on where you are and what nation you're a part of that comes with all of these ideas that the white doctors would then have about how civilized you were and how seriously they should take your pain and also forcing people's bodies into positions that are easier for doctors uh, and not necessarily better for birthing women um, resulted in a lot of well, I mean, like, yeah, it resulted in a lot of dead mothers, essentially. So that was bad. Um, but also, like, what what yeah. was the sort of general, like, colonization project result of this? Uh, was basically they killed and or sterilized a whole bunch of people. Um, again, we have the medicalization of childbirth, which in a few moments Sonia's going to talk about a lot more. Uh, women didn't, I mean, men, sorry, men didn't know what they were doing and they didn't take women's pain seriously, like I just said before. And they especially didn't take indigenous women seriously because they were not viewed as like full people yet. That like maybe in, you know, another hundred generations, they'll become like white people, but they'll never quite get there. And we shouldn't really think about them as like full people. You know, there's like a whole hierarchy of, of cultures that colonial societies were operating in and um it was not safe for a majority of the people who existed and gave birth in this context um now song is going to talk about the 19th century right one sec Right. So as we talked about last episode, right, people started to want to limit their families, at least like (laughs) white, semi-well-off people. We'll put it that way. Um, Which, you know, as as the late 18th and we get into the 19th century goes on, you get more and more of this like middle class hegemony, right, where 
the idea of, well, it's better to have a smaller family and heavily invest in those handful of kids becomes the mainstream and it becomes the norm that everyone else is supposed to like aspire to because maybe if you behave correctly you too can get out of poverty and (laughs) oppression and that's not how anything works but that's the 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 idea that is sold basically um so when we look at the medical understanding of pregnancy from the late 18th and into the early 19th century, there is this big shift in how pregnancy is discussed. Pregnant women prior to this were, for the most part, as we've said before, they were, you know, they were thriving, they were fertile, they were fruitful. It was typically described in quite, you know, positive terms. But more and more we see it as an emphasis on the toll of pregnancy and birth and words like unwell, sick, and indisposed become euphemisms for pregnant during this time period. So we start seeing like these seeds of ideas of pregnancy is a time of exceptional danger, it is a time of distress, and seeing non-pregnancy as like a baseline healthy time for a woman, right? Because at this point now we're getting into the idealized family being, you know, maybe four or five children as compared to previously where, you know, you couldn't regard pregnancy as this like super special time and super concerning (laughs) time because you were literally doing it every other year, maybe every other, you know, maybe every year, maybe every three years. And as the 19th century progresses, not just the birth, which as we've talked about, you know, in uh, would would have been attended in the pre-modern world by a group of women, typically midwife, female relatives, maybe female neighbors and friends, basically whoever the pregnant woman felt yeah. comfortable having over basically during that time um they were sometimes even called groaning parties um where all the men would be like kicked out of the house and the women would just like hang out eat food have a good time and like wait for the baby to come basically but as the 19th century progresses pregnancy starts to be seen as like well this should be a private matter right because it's i mean preg if you're pregnant that means that you've had sex you filthy (laughs) filthy slut (laughs) you (laughs) married woman who is doing the thing that you are told you're supposed to do disgusting so it becomes this situation where victorian prudery just becomes so heightened that good women which really means wealthy white middle to upper class women were supposed to see pregnancy as shameful and as well i can't be seen in public like this so for the last few months of your pregnancy when you could no longer hide it under you know all your skirts and shawls and stuff you would basically sequester yourself away and just kind of hide from the public eye for the last few months um and again, at that point, they typically were only having a few children. 
So it wouldn't, it, it became not entirely impractical for women to do this. And uh, again, as this becomes this more and more like stage part, part of life that is seen as both risky and dangerous, but also shameful in the 19th century, we start seeing much more of this. Well, okay, this needs special medical attention and we need special scientific knowledge if we're going to handle this correctly. So you basically start getting a lot of these advice manuals. And the big point of a lot of these 19th century advice manuals is saying, you know, if you do everything right, if you do the correct things, if you follow the right steps during pregnancy, then you too can produce a healthy, happy, bouncing baby, right? Like that's, that, that's the promise. Whereas again, prior to this, a pregnancy was just seen as like, yeah, this is pretty touch and go. Like, this, aside from trying to keep yourself healthy, there's not much you can do. But now, once we're getting into the mid and late 19th century, right, you, women were suddenly being held responsible for the health of the pregnancy. If they miscarried, if they had a sickly yeah. child, it was beginning to be seen as your fault. And then the pregnancy advice also started having much more, right. And the other big development that we see is before, right, pictures of developing fetuses, developing embryos were usually either presented as like a <laughs> tiny dancing man in the uterus, yeah. um, based on this idea of like the homunculus, right? Like this idea that like, each little sperm cell contained a tiny little man, and he just goes, whoop, or woman, I guess. If something gets super you messed know, up. all of you were unlucky and, and have a little girl, homunculus right? man <laughs> get all screwed up and. Yes, it comes out female. <laughs> so, prior to this, that's pretty much how it would be drawn just like a tiny little person in there, or it would be drawn as. Um, based yeah. off of things like chicken development in the eggs. But once you start seeing these pregnancy advice manuals, they are getting much more detailed about embryonic development, about fetal development. And there's this like yeah. idea that you are supposed to start getting invested like right from the beginning. Like, oh man, you should care about yeah. what this looks like with each passing week, right? And by the 1920s, this actually shifts a little bit because, right, Victorian era into the Edwardian era, it's still very, like, ah, oh, your pregnancy, you shameful slut, you must stay home and pretend that you don't know what sex is. But in the 1920s, women were told, no, 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 that's out the window. New woman. We're going to be optimistic. We're going to be modern. We're going to wear cute maternity clothes outside and read all the latest pregnancy <laughs> advice manuals we're going to talk like radio announcers and by this point it had been completely normalized that yeah you should have a doctor guiding you from start to finish because you know you cannot trust mothers mothers-in-law older women those people of 
of the past. They're out here telling horror stories. They're out here comparing themselves. <laughs> literally, they would compare their situations to like war stories, to torture, to talking about how painful it was, how much blood there was. And all the doctors are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> now we're going to do science. Don't listen to their nonsense. Um, so basically there was this idea that science was going to lead the way. It was going to be this beautiful beacon where everything was going to go well from now on. And there even more ramps up this feeling of like, you need to have this, this almost breathless wonder yeah. over the developing fetus, right? Like the miracle of life situation. It's like, wow, isn't this incredible? Your baby is now the size of a pomegranate. Like very similar to that. And it also becomes, pregnancy becomes somewhat more public in that this is when we really start seeing what they called at the time stork parties. A baby shower. Um, <laughs> which nowadays we would think of as a baby shower. Yeah. And this is actually when we start seeing the idea that ahem, an advice columnar Marion Harland from the Chicago Tribune wrote, Blue is the conventional color for the boy, presumably because he is to be a warrior in the world's great field of battle. Blue is the soldier and sailor's color. Whereas celestial rosy red, love's proper hue, is gallantly awarded to the baby girl. Her conquests in the olden times <laughs> were supposed to be under Cupid's banner. So we've got... We have a baby shower, and we even have color-coded baby shower coming into play. As the 20th century goes on, we actually do finally see a noticeable drop in maternal and infant mortality. Um, by the late 30s and 40s, you have medical breakthroughs like blood transfusion, so a Not. woman who previously <laughs> would have hemorrhaged to death could live. Um, there was also the uh, drug ergometrine, which could contract the uterus to actually prevent hemorrhage in the first place. And you have the development of antibiotics so that you're not dying of deadly postpartum infections. So we see a steep decline finally in terms of death from pregnancy and childbirth. So at this point in, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, especially with the baby boom, women, this is really the first time when women stop viewing pregnancy as sort of touch and go with that kind of apprehension with the, we all might be mm, dead. like we're not going to get too invested just yet because you know this may not actually yeah we might all die this was now rather than comparing themselves to soldiers they were comparing themselves as you know it was seen as this like cheerful happy optimistic time where butterfly inside. you know having children is not Yes, exactly. It's you're you're glowing. It's so beautiful. You know, childbearing and pregnancy is supposed to be not just like a utilitarian thing that you yeah. do, but is supposed to be fulfilling emotionally as, you know, at, it, it is supposed to be fulfilling for you and is supposed to be fulfilling and joyful right from the start. So rather than this kind of cautious foreboding, you're now supposed to have a standard of pregnancy is a happy, joyful time, and you're going to welcome a healthy baby. <laughs> However, this optimism was not to last. 
because in 1965, American women, um, and women more broadly, but this is when it hit the Americas, was uh, the rubella epidemic, which rubella, if you catch it, will cause miscarriages, infant death, uh, blindness, deafness, and heart malformations, and other, um, basically, issues surrounding birth and um, the baby's well-being. And if a woman contracted rubella in her first few weeks of pregnancy, there was a 50% chance of the child being affected. So there was that. And then right on on the heels of that, this did not affect American women so much because it wasn't really used. But in Europe, especially, um, you have thalidomide, which caused babies to be born with short kind of flipper limbs is how it was described. So, you know, you have this drug that was just supposed to be something that you take to help you sleep, and now it suddenly is causing birth defects for you. And then in 1971, you have stilbestrol, otherwise known as DES, which was prescribed since the 1950s to prevent miscarriage, but it was actually found that it caused cancers and reproductive tract damage to the women who had been taking it. And in the 70s, they started doing research on alcohol exposure during um, during pregnancy. And this is when we start hearing the term fetal alcohol syndrome. There's also in... Uh, 1985, the Surgeon General warned that smoking by pregnant women can result in fetal injury, premature birth, and low birth weight. So women were basically told that they had to worry about prescription drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, and infectious diseases. If through some way they were exposed to any of this while they were pregnant, including during the time when they did not know they were pregnant. Terrible women living lives, being people... Yes, and there are, you know, (laughs) exactly. And it's also very much framed as, you know, this is a moral failing on your part if your fetus is exposed to anything bad in the environment. Um, This really comes to a fever pitch in the 80s and 90s when you have the crack cocaine epidemic, basically. And... You know, you have this derogatory um, terminology where people called children who were born to mothers who were addicted crack babies. Um, so it's and and in a lot of places, law enforcement would actually punish these women with child abuse um, and arrest them. And uh, the same thing very quickly afterwards was applied to alcoholic mothers or other mothers who struggle with addiction. So we start to see women in the public eye being seen as basically like adversaries of their unborn child as, you know, a a source of danger and damage. And we have to control these, these women and make sure they're doing everything right because they are ruining their children and the list of things that you can and cannot eat or drink or be exposed to was just increasingly added to. There 
in uh, 1980, there was a warning that caffeine might cause birth defects and recommended that pregnant women avoid coffee and soda. Um, but despite the fact that this was still in like its very early stages, a cup you of know, coffee. women everywhere were being treated like absolute monsters if they so much as drank like a coffee. Yeah. And basically, this is just a huge, like, it, it's a microcosm, I guess, yeah. of the big push in the 80s and 90s where we start seeing this hyper-individualization of public health has is supposed to improve on a population scale by making sure that people make good, quote-unquote, choices. It is not the responsibility of political action to, say, clean up environmental health hazards remove lead paint remove lead in pipes it's not their yeah. responsibility to you know have or universal help health care access or help people you who know, struggle with addiction get treatment no no, no a sustainable income fault. so that they're not like undernourished malnourished overworked anything like that um, any of these things that also contribute to high risk for addiction no we're not going to deal with any of those things if you're addicted to something yep. it's your own fault why do you suck so much you terrible person yep and since then you know again through the 80s and 90s this list just gets longer and longer because now suddenly you're a pregnant woman don't change the kitty litter. You can't eat unpasteurized cheese. You can't eat sushi. You have to heat up your lunch meat um, before you eat it. In the what in the original What to Expect When You're Expecting in 1984, a direct quote is, You've got only nine months of meals and snacks with which to give your baby the best possible start in life. Make every one of them count. Before you close your mouth on a fork full of food, I, consider, is this the best I, I can give my to, new like, baby? I just point out, I know we don't have a whole so, lot of time left, but I, I, I really <laughs> want to point out the, the way that the, so like, if we look at these like pre-industrial, pre, uh, pre-modern, conceptions of pregnancy right it really is about like protecting the mother in this time where the already fully formed human is going through something dangerous right and then we see this shift especially in the 20th century to dehumanizing yes. a woman for the sake of a potential person regardless of what is like going on with that pregnancy you know we know like we talked about in the fertility episode that like a majority of miscarriages happen rather early in pregnancy and they happen because like that like combination of sperm and ovum is just genetically unviable like there's no way that it could like develop into a person but like women are held the women are held responsible for that the person who is incubating yeah. that like potential is held responsible for that and also like any sort of like problem that happens in pregnancy like the more that we find out what could possibly be linked to some sort of like developmental disability or anything like that it's it's seen as like this horrible crime against like a potential life and that the person who is incubating that potential life is is responsible for absolutely everything about that so instead of like doing more things to humanize the woman and protect 
her and like build up like a system that can support healthy adult life we're going to dehumanize them and turn them literally into just like incubators for something that reasonably speaking doesn't exist yet and then also blame mothers for any disability that a child has and that also then on a whole nother level equates disability any sort of physical or mental disability to like not being a full person because something happened in incubation and now you're like not really damn if only you had come out right (laughs) like we're not going to do anything systemically to help you access anything uh Mm -hmm. it just sucks that you couldn't have had better parents i'm sorry that you don't have feet or like whatever the issue is yeah and i i think bouncing off of what you're saying about dehumanizing women i think in the 2000s especially these past 20 years we have seen an increasing a dehumanization of pregnant people but also a hyper personalization of the fetus and that's kind of the last thing i want to end off with is 20th century again prior to basically the last 20th century not even the whole 20th century like pre 1970s 1980s like you were pregnant okay maybe you're happy about it maybe you're ambivalent maybe you're like not thrilled but okay whatever we'll deal with this but in the 2000s we start to see this idea that you can somehow bond with your embryo and fetus in the womb So you have all kinds of advice manuals and, you know, websites basically telling you that you have to bond with this potential person before they're even born. So you have all kinds of bonding practices, like talking to your abdomen, having your husband or yourself read children's books aloud or singing songs to the baby or having you know, music that is going to be enriching for the fetus, like having classical music playing near your abdomen so that the baby can hear it. Um, Writing letters or journal entries to the baby, taking, you know, these very, like, apparently you are supposed to, in according to some manuals, cradling your, like, abdomen region. It's not even a bump yet. Like, starting from the time you know you're pregnant, twice a day, you're supposed to, like, touch your area where there's a uterus. And, you know, just, like, think about your baby and and think about how much you already love them. And there are so many apps out there that, you know, try to turn pregnancy into, gamification, almost a video game. Yeah, like this gamification of it where it's like, well, I have to hit 100% health every single day because if I don't tick off all the boxes, then it's my fault and my baby's going to come out with antlers and no legs and also half a lung. If you don't get your full health points, then when it's born, how is it going to get its sword (laughs) to save the Princess Zelda? Come on. And it's, I mean, I want to be very clear. If this is something that you want to do, and this is something that's making you happy to, like, read books, 
allowed you? to your fetus. But also, if that's you don't want to do that, your but baby's not, not hurting going to be anymore. Or like, but the problem is, if, yeah, and you're not a bad mother, and it's and not you're going not to be a like bad broken person for life. You... Like they can, they'll have like there are normal bonding things that happen after a baby after baby is like, born. Yeah, and like and like to be clear, fine. like way after the baby is born. Like that's the other big thing is that in the 21st century this idea of like well if you you know this idea that like well if you have a c-section then they won't give the baby to you for skin-to-skin contact right away and if you don't do skin-to-skin contact the second that baby comes out of you it's definitely gonna be a psychopath it's over you'll never feel emotions and it's like (laughs) i mean uh, again, yes, hold your baby, bond with your baby, but don't. People have been having babies for a long time, and it's really only these past 20-ish years where we've suddenly been like, you must read it a bedtime story before it has developed ears, yeah, and, you, like, and it needs to have, you a, don't, it needs to have a name from the moment of conception. Like There are plenty of cultures where you don't... One, you don't get the name that you use for most of your life until you're an adult, and like... Before that, yeah. like, you know, it's it's really, like, focusing on, is this thing going to live long enough for me to even bother naming it? <laughs> like, Exactly. I think it's put a lot of so pressure I, on I think... women to be, like, perfectly and exclusively mothers from the moment that... Yeah, and it's this idea... And, like, saying that there is a moment when conception happens it, it's... is even in and of itself... Yeah. And and it's also just this idea that like the standard for being a good mother is perfection. Anything short of absolutely perfect diet, hydration, sleep schedule, doctor schedule, exercise regime, you're a like, bad person. Everything. If you if you're a bad person if you like had a glass of wine before you even yeah. knew you were pregnant. You're a bad person if you you know, didn't eat as many vegetables as you possibly could. Like, it's just if you didn't go to mommy and to... me pregnant yoga. Why are you even having a kid? <laughs> I think this also feeds into also what we were talking about before about this this question of choice and the choice to be pregnant, the choice to be a parent, yeah, and the ideas of what we have around what it means to be a fit mother, which is essentially like your entire mm-hmm. existence is for the benefit of this potential life and the way that that excludes women who can't afford all of those things and the way that it yeah. says that this is a personal individual responsibility rather than the responsibility of an entire society to help women you know there was before the 20th century even i think this is we we mapped this pretty well with your discussion of the 19th century the way that this becomes an individual thing before this period in the late 19th century there was not an idea that you as mother as parent you know mother and father were going to be the sole caregivers for this child that you should have a life where you can provide absolutely everything always for this kid and that you needed a lot of stuff to provide for a kid again my discussion of chairs people did not have chairs this was not a thing (laughs) exactly and also the idea that like your life has to revolve around that 
child. Yeah, rather than the like, child coming have to... into your life and becoming a part yeah. of what has already been established and the community that has already yeah. been established and making space for the child within a community that already exists. Yeah, this it it's just I think it's a lot of unnecessary pressure and just really unrealistic expectations for what pregnancy is going to be and what that looks like. And I think, you know, we could do with being a little more realistic about expectations yeah. that like, yeah, you know, not every pregnancy is going to be viable. And when you're pregnant, you're not going to do every possible health and wellness thing perfectly. Yeah. And that's, fine like you're gonna be okay everything's going to be okay yeah that like regardless of the outcome of this particular situation we should be developing communities that are strong enough to deal with whatever the outcome of it is right and yes. that like there should not be a situation that you're going through entirely alone um or yeah. that you are held solely responsible for um yeah that's just that's some bad news. Ayn Rand can go back to her dirty little hole with that nonsense. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Anyway, <laughs> thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week when we talk to a real-life midwife who's yeah. going to tell us all about childbirth it's gonna be and how fun. that works. Yeah. So we'll talk to you then. Oh, also make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to be a part of our Discord and live and streams and all of that stuff, live streams, AMAs, all that kind of extra bonus plus content, bonus episodes, make plus sure exclusive you merch. There's so much over on the Patreon. Get over there. Yes, make sure you to get all that stuff. Join us on Patreon. Uh, Yes, please, please join us on Patreon. Um, I think it's right now we're at about 2% of our listeners are Patreon subscribers. Um, we would really, really love it if there were more of you so that we can really build out this community and um, buy groceries. Yes. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Bobby Yaga Project. If you want more awesome Baba Yaga content, uh, you should join our Patreon where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, we want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!